Well, you can hear the signature tune, and that means it's time for Rational Radio this Wednesday. It's Alec Hogg coming to you from Santon, uh, the richest square mile on the African continent, and it's a real pleasure to be bringing you a program to savor today. We've got a lineup that uh, kicks off with uh, the basics of expropriation of land without compensation, goes into another bad news story for South Africa on the emigration that is picking up and what this really means to the tax base in future. Then we have a look at negative bond yields around the world. David Shapiro will be talking to a 10 billion rand hole, allegedly or not, in the Discovery account, certainly smashed the Discovery share price as a result. And then we'll have a feedback from Wilhelm Herzog. Uh, he's a top money manager who was at the Steinhoff investor presentation yesterday. And we close off the show today with a former colleague of mine, a man who was part of our internship program back in the days when I owned MoneyWeb, uh, Malcolm Reese, who got into, well, into the public spotlight ahead of the Sunday Times' rogue unit SARS reports. He was back in the news in the past few days for issuing a apology to Johan van Lochenberg, who was on our show last week. So we'll be talking to Malcolm about that, what's happening uh, in, in that whole process, and uh, we'll be picking up with him on those stories and others as we go forward into the program today. So stay with us. We've got lots and lots of good news to give you. Well, it's a warm welcome to kick off the show today with uh, Terence Corrigan. He's from the Institute of Race Relations. Terence, lovely to have you on the program. Last time we saw each other, in fact, was in London, where you were also talking, talking about this subject. Uh, yes, it has a distressing longevity. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, what I wanted to, to pick out with you today, if, you, if you're happy to do so, is the mm. basics. Why are you and so many other people getting so hot under the collar about expropriation of land without compensation? Surely South Africa's got a history of land that was stolen from people and they want it back, or some want it back, or the descendants want it back. What's the story? Well, you know, I think that... Um, uh, your, your initial premise is perhaps incorrect, the idea of expropriation of land without compensation. We are opposed to the principle of expropriation without compensation. Um, yes, it is often phrased in an agricultural metaphysics, if you like, or um, as a land issue. But once that floodgate is opened, um, there's a sort of genie out of the bottle principle. Um, and we do not believe that it will be confined to, um, uh, to land, to farming, We've already seen proposals for things like prescribed assets. Uh, the other day, um, there was the head of the uh, Health Professions Council saying that uh, medical aid reserve should be nationalized. Um, the impact across the whole investment environment is, um, uh, has already been, I think, quite deleterious. Um, so it's a slippery you know, slope. In other words, you start well, here it's, and it's, anything it's, could it, happen. Well, yeah, look, I mean, uh, in, intrinsically, it's a, um, uh, it's a bad idea. Um, I hear what you say about the, about the imperative of land reform. Uh, and, uh, you know, just, just to clarify something, we are not a land reform. Um, but the, um, w- um, the World Bank uh, um, released a paper some years ago, which had a very, very evocative line in it, that policies designed for redistribution um, will benefit the poor to the extent that they do not disrupt the capacity of an economy to, to, um, uh, to generate wealth. Um, South Africa has, um, I think, already taken um, enormous damage from this, uh, from the mere debate. Once it enters the realms of actual seizures, um, I think that we can um, uh, we can kiss any any prospects of new dawns, or for that matter, old dawns, goodbye. Mm. Okay, so let's just go back to the basics here. How did it yes. become such a emotive issue? that the ANC government and, indeed, a president who's very sensible in most areas mm. uh, would right. have embraced this? Um, well, look, I think you, uh, you sort of have to go back to um, uh, uh, probably to the 1960s to the influence that uh, uh, a sort of vulgarized um, uh, 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 socialism had on the, on, uh, on the thinking of the ANC. Uh, land itself, of course, has always been a very, very evocative issue for nationalist movements, and that's irrespective of, you know, what part of the world they come from. Um, now, uh, in the 1990s, the ANC was uh, ambivalent about the idea of constitutional protection of property. Um, although they, it wasn't, it wasn't land that was the, uh, that was the issue. It was uh, things like mines. It was things like what, you know, what they called industri- industrial monopolies, banks, that sort of thing. 
which uh, I think has now sort of slipped back into the discourse as white monopoly capital. Um, so I think that there was always a, a, a very strong ideological pull. Um, it started to come back into into vogue uh, probably about uh, 10 years ago. We've seen about 30 pieces of, of, of legislation, policy proposals and whatever that sort to significantly constrain uh, property rights. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, because of the, of the, um, uh, sort of twins of, of ideology and the symbolism of land, um, that it, it, it became an issue that, um, uh, that started to, you know, generate a certain political momentum, uh, you know, on the, um, in the Zuma camp. Uh, President Ramaphosa, I think, was, uh, was then presented with this. And, um, I think he essentially trimmed his sails accordingly. Mm. Um, so it's politics. Uh, it's all about politics, well, not about economics. Um, no, no, I don't think there's anything to do with um, with the economics whatsoever. In fact, Kabisi uh, um, Jonas just said the just said the other day, introducing his book, that President Ramaphosa has to decide whether he wants to unite the ANC or, or he wants to save the country. Um, I think these two things are, are are in severe tension. I think this is a very good example of them. Okay, so let's just try and reshape this this mm. discourse. Isn't it right. smarter to say? Nobody's against compensating land or giving back land to those people who were dispossessed illegally. Yes, of course. Let's, of course. But let's separate that from yeah. a, a broader uh, conversation. The problem that, that I, I think is, is happening in South Africa is because the headlines are all dominant uh, around EWC, it's become populist, it's, it's lost, its, it seems, Terence, to have... To have lost the real focus and, and the stuff that you're trying to um, to warn against. Yes, uh, look, I think that it's become um, it's become a totem. It's kind of uh, you know like the uh, like the idol carried at the head of the conquering army. Um, yes, uh, I'd, um, we 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 have a vast volume of um, of research, um, including by people who are not particularly sympathetic to the idea of property rights, uh, about what is wrong with um, uh, with land reform in South Africa. Uh, very, very little of it actually has to do with with, uh, with the compensation requirements. Um, you know, I, I can personally tell you stories of um, of people who have tried to um, donate land. You know, um, uh, farmers who are who are exiting the industry and have no one to to pass it on to. Um, land, uh, certainly in an agrarian sense, is not a um, is 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 not is not the key thing for um, uh, for uh, for, uh, for successful agrarian reform. You need skills, you need capital, you need a, a sort of functioning state, you need agricultural extension service, none of which we have and none of which will be, um, will be, uh, uh, provided by this. Yet, um, in, uh, March last year, you had President Ramaphosa saying that, uh, uh, you know, we're coming for the land and when we take it, we'll take it without compensation. A month earlier, he was saying that this was going to turn South Africa into a, into a garden of Eden. His theology is actually, actually wrong there. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it, as I say, it's become a um, it's become a totem. The problem is the, the problem is a political totem has very real economic costs. Um, mm. There has been a fall off in agricultural investment, and I can tell you we have, we speak to a lot of business people, both local and domestic, who have nothing to do with agriculture, who say that until this is off the table, they're not they're not sinking their money. Well, uh, it's Terence Corrigan is with the Institute for Race Relations, and he did come to London, and we put a a, a group together which he addressed about fifty odd people. Uh, where he warned, it's well over a year ago, that the economic consequences of what's going on there are not so good. Let's just hope that somebody somewhere can look at the arguments again, try to find the rational approach towards this, and hopefully start looking at the real sense behind it. And uh, I don't think anybody can argue with if you've been dispossessed or land has been stolen from you, you need to give it back for sure or get it back. But uh, the slippery slope that this seems to uh, put us on, as Terence has explained, is really not very smart. Come on, South Africa, we're better than that. We're going to be talking to Azar Jameen in just a moment. Mr. Worldwide to infinity, <laughs> you know the roof on fire. We go boogie, oogie, oogie, jiggle, wiggle, and dance <laughs> like the roof on fire. We go drink drinks and take shots until we fall out like the roof on fire. Well, joining us now from uh, from his holiday, I presume, at the coast is uh, Azar Jameen from Econometrics. 
as are really good to have you on the program. Uh, you might be on holiday, but you're certainly still hard at work and telling us uh, about the, the issues that we need to worry about. We've got a piece on Biz News today about the whole escalation in emigration, which is a subject that I think is close to every South African's heart. What is the situation right now? Is it, is it growing? One has identified over the last year or so a very perceptible increase in the rate of emigration. And uh, although no hard figures are available to actually uh, show up these numbers in the most recent past, uh, we, I, one has, can track the figures over the past decade to see that uh, it has been a persistent trend but uh, it's difficult to actually conclude definitively that the actual rate of emigration has accelerated. It's just from anecdotal evidence that one sees that that has been the case. There has been growing disillusionment with the manner in which uh, the government is actually tackling structural reforms, suggesting that the pace of economic growth is going to remain pedestrian, at best in the foreseeable future, leading to still more unemployment and the uh, negative social consequences that that could bring about. And I guess the bad news, as you write in your report, is that it's skilled people who emigrate, and skilled people cost a lot of money to make skilled. Uh, The economy invests heavily in them. So uh, that that, uh, something that, that, that you pointed out, which I thought was interesting, is whites have been emigrating for years, but now it's not just whites who are leaving. Uh, that That is what one gathers. Uh, uh, obviously, there are no hard figures to show that up, but uh, by all accounts, it is not just whites who are emigrating. Some of the blacks who perceive themselves to be categorized as uh, so-called clever blacks by some of the factions within the ANC of uh, getting disillusioned with the manner in which uh, uh, the economy is panning out and are uh, looking for uh, greener pastures elsewhere. And they are in demand if they've got the uh, appropriate qualifications. Because what one has found, uh, studies have shown that the people who are emigrating are proportionately much better qualified than the average of the uh, level of education of the people in the countries to whom they emigrate to. Yeah, well, we can thank Donald Trump for that, can't we, for the way he's opened up to to bring in uh, more, more skills into his country, and other countries are doing the same thing. Okay. So that's the bad news. Uh, perhaps even more bad news is that these are the people who pay a lot of the taxes. Uh, that is one of the aspects that is very worrisome in this regard, is that uh, one wonders to the extent to which this is going to impact negatively on the tax base of the country. Um, a lot of emphasis has been put on the manner in which uh, Tom Moyani destroyed the South African Revenue Services and the way in which that harmed the country's tax uh, revenue raising ability. But one wonders whether it's all whether it can all be attributed to that factor alone or whether there is an underlying uh, deterioration in the country's tax base as a result of the loss of the best uh, earning members of the population. Or some of them at least. You do say, though, that about 2% of the population pay 70% of personal income tax. I know that SARS does disclose these numbers, and they certainly are in that huge document we get on Budget Day, but that sounds astonishing. As much as that, Azar? Yes, it is as much as that. You've got uh, 1.05 million people uh, earning uh, over half a million rand. And, I mean, they they account for 69% of all the personal tax earned. Uh, The positive way in which one can look at it is that, uh, well, I've done the calculations, a person earning over a million rand a year uh, can at least uh, have the comfort of knowing that Theoretically, his personal taxes can keep uh, 70 to 80 people uh, alive in South Africa through social grants. I like that. Let's try and find something else that's positive here. Is there, uh, is there not a saying that it's always darkest before the dawn? I would love to think that that is the case. And uh, 
you know, people asked me, you know, is the downside potential in the economy not greater than the upside? And I answer, no, I, I think that uh, the upside is as uh, there is an upside potential as great as the downside potential. If only the government would uh, start embarking upon certain structural reforms uh, and uh, why people are getting disillusioned at the moment is they feel that the government is uh, uh uh, stalling in undertaking those structural reforms, but it's not impossible that one may see a sudden and dramatic turnaround in the way in which uh, some of these issues are being addressed. So I want to throw something at you. I was with a chief executive this week who's had a really torrid time in the last couple of years fixing a company, and he said basically his time has been absorbed by sorting out the issues that he, he came across when he arrived there, and as a consequence, he hasn't been able to really run the place. But now he's able to run the place, he's very excited about the future. Isn't this a little bit like what Ramaphosa has found himself with? <coughs> very, very much so. And that is why um, I, I do believe that uh, there is that ray of light that uh, somehow some uh, we may just possibly be surprised at the extent to which uh, Ramaphosa manages eventually to sort out some of the factional politics within his organization and starts running with the economy in an appropriate way that actually restores economic growth to a much higher level. And uh, I don't believe that one needs to have any uh, even uh, dramatic changes to somehow bring about a very significant turnaround in confidence in the country. Zajamin is with Econometrics, uh, one of my favorite economists in the whole world, and my goodness, uh, you know why when you listen to him there. Always looking for the balance, looking for something that might be a little different to the popular discourse, and once more, you got it. Well, we're now going to the Cape, and uh, Wilhelm Herzog, who unfortunately had other commitments during our hour of power between noon and 1 p.m., but I did get hold of him this morning. Now, Wilhelm was at the Steinhoff Investor presentation yesterday, the first time that Steinhoff has been able to talk about what's going on in its, uh, it, well, in its life, if you like, for 20 months since the bombshell when Marcus Eurster left the company in December 2017. Bill Hallam is a, um, a well-known, a veteran money manager. I had a lot to do with him over the uh, past few years when he was working with Pete Fulion at ReCM. And I asked him today to kick off our interview um, when, he, when he left Pitt or what he's up to now. And he said, well, he's actually started his own business. Uh, that happened about two years ago. I'd uh, spent 10 years with Pitful Yun, Janus Nikerk, etc. at ReCM. It was then good years, filled with great experiences, learned a lot. Uh, but after 10 years, I thought it was time to move on. So two partners and I set up Rosendahl Partners in early 2017. And that's where I still find myself today as a portfolio manager and analyst, really. And you went along to Steinhoff's investor presentation yesterday. The first since the bombshell hit in 2017. Are you a sign of shareholder? No, we're not sign of shareholders, or our clients are not sign of shareholders. So uh, our clients own bonds of Steinhoff, so two different uh, euro-denominated bonds, and also the RAND-denominated preference shares. So we own various instruments in the greater Steinhoff capital structure, but we don't own any ordinary equity, no. Just explain why you would go for bonds rather than the ordinary shares. Given the state of affairs in the group and the way the businesses are operating and the profitability, etc., to our mind, there's just too much uncertainty and risk attached to the ordinary shares. Uh, bondholders obviously have a preferential claim on any cash flows that the company generates. And the South African preference shares are quite secure in terms of the assets which service the South African preference shares and which uh, which eventually flow through the preference shares as dividends to preference shareholders. So there are different rights and obligations attached to each of these instruments. And in our analysis and assessment of the situation, the euro-denominated bonds are a more are a safer proposition, investment proposition, and the Equity, really, there's so much uncertainty attached to the equity that it's, to our mind, a, cost, a coin toss, really, whether there's any value in the 
in the ordinary shares or not. And that's not a, a risk-reward profile we were comfortable with. Are those bonds, are they actually receiving interest? No, so they haven't been paying interest on them. Interest has been accruing uh, since the lockup agreement was signed in mid-2018, more or less. But interest hasn't been paid. But yesterday, Steinhoff announced that the CVA process has concluded and the restructuring agreements have now become effective. So those euro-denominated bonds have now been converted into new loan notes, which are also pick notes, as they call them, so payment in kind, i.e., they do accrue interest, but the interest doesn't get paid out in cash. So at come the date when these bonds mature, then you will be receiving back uh, an amount greater than the face value of the bonds, which uh, amounts to the face value plus accrued interest. But you don't actually receive any interest while the bonds are outstanding So I presume for the you, next two and a half years. You get them at a, at a pretty good discount. Correct, yes. So specifically uh, the 2023 convertible bonds issued by Steinhoff Finance Holdings, which is a European entity in the Steinhoff structure, those bonds were trading at a very deep discount to their face value and have been for uh, ever since the events of December 2017. And that reflects the fact that those bonds specifically also sit in a, in a vehicle in the Steinhoff structure where it has a almost a second-to-last claim on any cash, cash flows that the businesses generate. So they rank just ahead of equity in a, in, a, in a greater capital structure. The other tranche of bonds issued by Steinhoff Europe AG, they have a, have a better position in the capital structure, so they almost have sit on top of PEPCO in Europe and also Conforama, which are valuable assets and which generate good cash and, and, and earnings. So the... The sign of euro bonds have always been trading at a higher price relative to their face value than, for instance, the sign of uh, finance holdings convertible bonds. And that just reflects uh, the, the different places in the entire capital structure where those bonds are sitting and, and, and their preferential claims to cash flows or otherwise. That's interesting. Thanks for unpacking all of that for us. So they, clearly that's where the smart money would be going. But there were a lot of smart people there yesterday, presumably at the uh, presentation, more than 300 people who went in through the webcast, uh, as the chair uh, explained to us. What did you make of proceedings? I think the proceedings were uh, a very succinct summary of events over the past, uh, call it 18 months, almost stretching to two years now. And was very helpful in terms of getting an overview of where the company is. And there were also some interesting comments made about the future direction the group will be taking under the current management team and board. But there was very little, call it value-relevant information that was disclosed. I mean, the, the trading performance of the underlying companies, which is really what one looks to in the end to assess whether there is value in sign-off and in the various instruments in the capital structure. There was no real new news on that. Um, so it was a nice overview, but really little new value-relevant information that was disclosed, to be honest. Although there was a question about when is Marcus Yuster going to jail, <laughs> which I think many people <laughs> sure. were interested to hear. No, there's a great deal of public interest in, in that affair, but I mean, that's really of very little relevance from an investor's point of view in sign of uh, capital structure instruments. Mm. So what's the next, uh, the next time you're going to hear from these guys, presumably at the annual general meeting? And, and, and what would you expect them to tell you then? Correct. Uh, at the annual general meeting will be the next time there's a public uh, or interaction from the company side with with investors and shareholders. I would expect far more aggressive questions being put to management at the AGM because typically the AGM is the forum where disgruntled shareholders arrive and air their grievances and, and, and sort of put management uh, under four eyes. That was certainly the experience in the 2017 AG, or sorry, the 2018 AGM last year. It was a far more aggressive and uh, almost antagonistic forum than what one experienced at yesterday's investor presentation. So I expect it to be, uh, I expect management to be under more pressure at the AGM than they were at yesterday's investor presentation. Uh, but I mean, I, again, I, I think, I don't think there's likely to be much new value relevant information that will be disclosed to the extent that the litigation and the ongoing litigation uh, will be uh, asked about. I mean, the company really can't say much at this stage. So it, it is a top priority for them, and that that is that will probably be top of mind at the AGM as well. 
but they can't really say much at this stage. There's still a great deal of uncertainty as to how that plays out, and, and they can't really disclose much given the confidential nature of such proceedings. Wilhelm, having a look at the people they've brought onto the board and even the chief executive himself, it looks like it's lawyers running the place now. No, absolutely. But that is, that is very much uh, what is required at this stage, I would say. Well, I mean, the big uncertainty hanging over the whole group is the quantum of any damages that will be uh, that will be awarded by a court in these various court actions that are ongoing. So priority number one for for its shareholders and bondholders is to ensure that all value in the group does not go to claimants in this litigation. That there's value left on the table for bondholders, firstly but then also for ordinary shareholders potentially. So it's very much the top of mind and, and, and they need to throw all resources at ensuring that the best possible outcome uh, is negotiated in these litigation cases. So in essence, what you've got here is a, is a bunch of assets, some of them very valuable, which have been acquired through uh, funding that was raised because not on, uh, on on accurate financial information, and now those who provided the funding are starting to uh, fight and saying, well, we want that money back, and depending on how much money they settle for, there might be money left in the pot for people who own Steinhoff, uh, and, or there might not be. Correct, yes. It, it, it is. One, one has to take a view on the outcome of this litigation if you want to take a view on the value of Steinhoff bonds or shares. Um, so we've done our own research and liaised with various legal experts on the matter, and there is some legal precedent in Europe as to the quantum of damages awarded in such claims. So based on that, what we, we have taken a view, but it, there is a great deal of uncertainty attached to what the eventual quantum will be. Also, over what time period Steiner will have to settle these claims, because there's a big difference between having to settle hundreds of millions of euros on uh, on a specific day or whether you given sort of a number of years of which to settle these claims. So all those kinds of things can be can can move the dial meaningfully either way in terms of how much value accrues the existing sign of bondholders and shareholders. But I, I guess the good news is that you've got two guys who were and are intimately involved with the litigation against Lehman Brothers, so they certainly have been playing in the Premier League. No, correct. Look, if one looks at the legal advisors that were pulled in to advise creditors in this whole company voluntary um, uh, agreement, the CBA, they are the Premier League of global, call it restructuring law firms, and uh, hence the massive legal fees one sees flowing through sign-ups accounts for the past 18 months, but they certainly have pulled in the top names in the world. Just to give us an understanding, to buy Steinhoff bonds or PREFs today, in other words, to go a little higher on the capital structure than the uh, ordinary shares that are traded on the JSE, what kind of a discount would you get to their, their supposed uh, underlying value? Okay, so, I mean, the last traded price of the sign of preference shares on the JSE before they were suspended was 44 rands versus a 100 rand face value. Obviously, it's a bit tricky to buy those these days because they're not publicly traded anymore. One really has to phone around and do some uh, and, uh, and employ some elbow grease to get hold of those shares. Um, as, as far as the bonds go, the bonds have basically, on the effective date, which was yesterday, converted to these new pick notes. And the pick notes have not started trading really yet, so there's no, there hasn't been a, a proper price set for them. But until, call it yesterday or the day before, the more senior bonds, the euro bonds, were trading at, call it 70 to 75 cents in the in the euro, or 70 to 75 percent of phase value, and the more junior convertible bonds, the 2023 convertible bonds, were trading in the order of 45 to 50 cents of phase value. Mm. So deep discounts to phase value and to what they supposedly were worth when they were issued. And then, if you're getting bonds which are so much higher up the uh, the chain, the food chain, at 40 percent, uh, what are the ordinary shares actually worth? Well, I think if you if you had to to close sign off down today and sell off the assets and settle all the bonds and all the creditors, I think there's there's little prospect of of shareholders recovering much, to be honest. So, I mean, in in, our, in my estimation, it would be close to zero. The shares are trading at a positive value because it is effectively optionality on a recovery. So, if something happens along the lines of sign off selling Pepco in Europe for a exorbitant price 
or Conferama suddenly turning around his trading performance and, and, and generating fire levels of EBITDA, or for that matter, Pep, or something similar happening to um, Pep Core Holdings in South Africa, then there is a, a off chance of the ordinary shares having value. But that is pure optionality value. I mean, if you look at Stein of today, in simple terms, uh, the group has about 10 billion euros of debt, carrying interest at roughly 10%. So they need to service interest, albeit non-cash interest, but it's interest nonetheless of about a billion euros per year. Most recently, they reported generating EBITDA sort of in the order of 440 million euros. So if you just analyze that, sorry, that 440 was for a six-month period. So if you analyze 440, you come to sort of roughly 900 million euros of EBITDA. So that's not operating profit or profit after tax, that is EBITDA. And so they can't service the interest though on the existing debt from the EBITDA the group generates, which tells you that slowly but surely the interest bill is eating up all equity value in Steinhoff. So you really need some very positive development to be confident of any value being left for ordinary shareholders. Well, indeed, you do. That's uh, Wilhelm Herzog, who is uh, with Rosendahl Partners, a firm that he started a couple of years ago. Well, uh, we're moving slightly across now. We have been talking about bonds, but more on Steinhoff bonds. Now we talk about global bonds, and it's a, it's a warm welcome to the shop that is the the experts on this. It certainly has been over the years for us here at Biz News. Um, we talked to Andrew Cantor and his team at Future Growth, and Ranzo Mukansi is the man who's uh, who, who's been delegated uh, to to help us through this, to understand where the world is going and what it means. Uh, Ranzo, we we know that in Germany, if you want to lend your money to the government, in other words, if you want to buy German bonds you get a negative interest rate. Now, in the United States, with the recent cuts, there are people who are saying that the U.S. even is going to be paying negative interest rates on bonds. That sounds absurd. Rather put the money under your mattress. What's happening? Well, thanks for having me on the line, Alex. What's happening is the world essentially is, is betting on, on deflation, and there's, there's a risk that over time, that that rates will be lower than they they are to today. So you've got negative interest rates across large swathes of of Europe, and there's a risk now, or market is, is speaking of the risk at least of of negative rates in in the U.S. So deflation that means that prices fall, and that's not really good for economies. No, it's it's not great, and you've seen that across Europe for the greater part of the past ten years. Monetary policy has been the primary instrument used to try and, and starve off deflation. So a lot of liquidity has been pumped into to the euro area, initially in the form of, of quantitative easing, and now I guess in, in terms of negative rates, and it hasn't been effective in, in upping inflation. I think the ECB has a measure of inflation, which is about 2-odd percent that they expect for I guess an indicative of a healthy economy, and over time, the euro area has fallen short of that, and market still seems to be disbelieving of the reflation efforts in the euro area, and that's a result, as a result of that, you're seeing, you're seeing negative rates across large swathes of, of Europe, and not only in developed markets, but so too now in emerging market economies like the Czech Republic, Hungary, Poland, are all flirting with, with, with negative interest rates at the short end of their nominal bond curve. Okay, so let's come home, and in South Africa, you still get a pretty healthy, uh, positive interest rate here. Does that not make uh, South African bonds a, um, a a good buy? And in fact, that's a question that was posed by Len G on our on our interactive channel. What's your response to that? So I guess it's, the answer to that is twofold. I think looking simplistically at our nominal rates relative to the developed world. There's a case to be made for, for favor to, to SA in that backdrop because of the positive spread differential between us and the rest of the world. But then I guess you need to zone into our, our domestic fundamentals as well and are those fundamentals warranting of, of foreigners buying, buying our bonds? And that question needs to be answered and the question marks around that given the, the state of the domestic economy and given the state of fiscal sustainability as as well. So there's been a lot of talk around possibilities of IMF bailouts. And regardless of the merits of that conversation, it's being brought about because of SA's weak macro backdrop and, and, and fiscal sustainability 
issues. So on the face of it, there's a case to be made for, for foreigners buying our bonds, but we do need to dig into a bit of a detail, I think, to adequately answer that question. Okay, Ranzo, so you raised it, the IMF bailout. How are you guys viewing that? Is it is it a prospect? It's being discussed because there's there's certainly a, a fiscal issue domestically. I think to adequately answer the question, we perhaps need to answer two things. I think the first of which is, or we need to answer whether SA needs a bailout. I think to do that, we need to answer two things. So the first of which is, is there a debt sustainability issue in South Africa, of which our answer would be no, and I'll 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 dig into the detail. And then the second of which is, does South Africa have a market access problem, which is already, which has historically been the conditions under which the IMF have, have offered, have offered financing when requested by, by a country? And our answer to that as well would be no. So I'd be happy to dig into, to those two things if, if you'd like. Mm. All right. Well, so, we, we know that someone like R.W. Johnson, uh, who's a, a, a well-known author and a former Oxford Don, has been banging on this drum for some yeah. years now. Uh, why is he going on about it if, if the experts like yourself uh, could explain to him, um, I suppose, without going into too much detail, sure. that it's not going to happen? So we're hugely concerned about the state of SS fiscal finances, and we, we don't mince our words around that. I think the point to be made here, though, is that although SS fiscal finances are in a, in a perilous state, I think there's still an ability to, to turn the ship around. There's still a level of self-determination that can be applied to, to turn things around. So how I would assess, so how we'd assess South Africa's debt sustainability is through the primary balance, essentially, which is South Africa's budget balance less debt servicing costs, and that's in negative territory at the moment, and over the medium term, call that three to five years, expected to remain in deficit territory. So what that means essentially is that South Africa is continually borrowing to finance our, our expenditure economically. I think the point to be made here perhaps is that, yes, it's negative, and that number will remain negative over the medium term, but if tough decisions are made today or in the forthcoming budget, which would be in October, the medium-term budget, then that number can be can be reined in. So some effort is being made towards that right now. National Treasury is speaking about reining in budgets essentially to, to, to departments, and that's on the order of 5% for next year, 6% for the fiscal year after that, and 7% for the year after that, which would make a significant adjustment to, to our baseline expectations for the primary balance and for their sustainability, ultimately. Ranzo McKenzie is with Future Growth giving us some, uh, well, the alternative view, if you like, to what we've been hearing from so many people about an IMF bailout. Uh, it just sounds to me like South Africa could turn on a ticky. All we need is the right kind of action coming from Pretoria. And, uh, well, the sooner that they can sort things out within the ANC and stop the fighting that's going on, the infighting that's going on there, the sooner the economy can get itself back into shape. We'll be talking in just a moment with David Shapiro. Oh, this is just, it's David Shapiro's song. The Wall Street Shuffle by 10CC, David. I mean, that's your era, isn't it? Uh, well, 10CC, yeah. Yeah, 10CC. You've, you've had an interesting week on, on Twitter. I see you came out a couple of days ago saying that you've heard that there's a 15 billion rand hole in the discovery balance sheet. And today, thank goodness, uh, you said there isn't a hole in the balance sheet. What's going on there, Dave? <laughs> well, you know, Alec, let me put it in perspective. I, uh, we've got clients that hold discovery. And whenever I see unusual price movements, I like to know why the share price is falling, particularly in Discovery's case where the share price had gone down recently from about 140 all the way to, at that stage, 105, 106. We know that national health uh, could affect them, but that's far away and uh, 250 billion rands worth of spending before that uh, really takes off. So it appeared to me that there was more to the story. Um, I investigated and found out that a, an analyst at Macquarie, whom we know, uh, Larissa van Dierwinter, had 
done a report on the insurance sector in which she valued, and this is why there was a bit of backtracking on my place, she, on my part, sorry, she valued uh, certain of their life business, or she valued their life businesses on, let's call it, a 12-year horizon, which was in line with some other insurances, versus a more aggressive valuation that Discovery used. And she said on the basis that she valued the companies, it would leave a kind of hole. When I say a hole, it would could leave their reserves underfunded by that 15 billion. So hence the, you know, hence the story. Um, there have been subsequent presentations. I haven't heard, uh, Larissa. She cancelled her meeting with us today. She's coming next week on that. But I think, I don't, I, I, I don't know whether it really had an effect on the market, but I think it's a worry that uh, that analysts, you know, in this kind of market are taking different views to, uh, to discovery. So that's where it came from. Uh, the sad thing is that I'm looking at Discovery today. They've fallen below 100. Wow. And, yeah, yeah, you know, Alec, my, my concern is I'm, I'm trying to find out why, why our market is actually under such huge pressure. This has got nothing to do with me, the tweet, or Larissa. This is, there's a much bigger sell-off taking place here, which I find particularly disturbing. You know, it's, uh, it's, 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 we've come under severe pressure and it could be a, a, a massive emerging market sell-off. It might even be local institutions deciding to cash in and, and rather go into for, you know, when I say cash in in a literal sense, just take some money off the table, leave it in cash, earn seven, eight percent and wait and see what happens. But we've seen, you know, shares like Sassel down at 280. Aspen has been absolutely devastated. They're down around under 70 rand. So a lot of value has been destroyed on SA Inc. And uh, it's concerning. You know, from our point of view, it's concerning because we don't know where this is going to end, nor do I know who's behind uh, the sell-off. In June, Discovery's share price was 150 rand. And you yeah. say now it's below 100 rand today. Below 100, yeah. Is that not by by taking the rational approach and uh, and and a more reflective view, an excellent buying opportunity? That, that's what I'm trying to find out. <laughs> you, you know, you, that's exactly what I'm trying to find out, and that's why I like to get to the source of the weakness to understand why this is you know why this is taking place, and that's why you start to dig. You know, which is generally a, a journalist um, approach. So, why has the share price fallen? Why are we seeing such weakness? In it? Is there more? Is there is? You know, Alec, things tend to creep out. Directors don't mean to. It's not insider trading, but sometimes, but somewhere along the line, that's why I always respect the market price because it tells us something that we don't know. We've got to go sharpen our pencils and find out why these shares have fallen like they have. And uh, it may be a wonderful buying opportunity, but I want to be sure that there's nothing happening that uh, I don't know about. You know, that, 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 that I, don't, I, I, wanna, you know, I don't want any surprises. Mm. So um, if that is the case, then it is a wonderful buying opportunity. And I probably could say the same for a whole lot of other industrials as well. But... Uh, I don't want to be the first person who puts my finger in the dark, you know. I don't, I, sorry, I don't want to be the big person with my finger in the dark. You know, I want to be, I want to know that, that there is a recovery taking place. But we've seen very, very big sell-off in, in SA Inc. And I think as a result of that, there could be some surprisingly, you know, uh, good opportunities. But for the meantime, we're taking a bit of a beating here. Mm. I'm, I'm just getting back to discovery. If there mm. is a 15 billion rand hole in the balance sheet, mm. sure, knock it down below 100 rand from 126 yes. to three days ago. But if there isn't, and you, you now appear quite comfortable that the analyst got it wrong and that the company has got the right answers, then surely to goodness, Warren Buffett would be saying to you, you know, buy, yes. on, buy as a result mm. of the fake yep. news. We, you know, when we're going to find that out when the results come out, and well, they're not going to lie to you, Dave. Surely they're not going to lie to you today. No. Uh, and, no they, and it would be so out of character if they were to have a, a hole in their balance sheet. I mean, who knows nowadays? But it it just doesn't seem doesn't seem sensible. But maybe the analyst has got her got her reasons, and uh, you know, well, we've had we enough can... analysts in the past who've actually 
waved flags, haven't they? Tongart, Steinhoff, and they go on. That's right. Don't you remember Basson in the old days, Dion? You remember uh, he was a superb bank Brilliant. analyst or insurance analyst. Mm. So, you know, he picked up certain issues and uh, was criticized. But I can't say the same. You know, insurance, valuing insurance companies is such a, such a difficult uh, part of the business, you know, because you need to understand how those businesses operate. And Discovery has got some very smart people, you know, that, that I can't challenge. But um, my, my only challenge and my position is based on why the share price has fallen this far, you know, and I, I'm, I'm digging for answers. And if, if they can satisfy us, if management uh, at the time of the results come through can satisfy us, then, then it is going to be an excellent buying opportunity. I think they've got a lot on their plates as well. Mm. We still haven't heard about the bank. You know, they're doing all these overseas expansions, and, and I think – a lot of those expansions are funded from money that they generate here, and you've got a rand at fifteen twenty-two, so that becomes a lot more expensive than it uh, than it was or should be. But they're generating so they're, they're generating positive cash flow in the UK now, so that should be positive. Yes, yes, that's Although, a good mm. that, yeah. That's anyway. a good one, and, and we'll see. Well, you know, you know what I mean. I'm, I've got a daughter that works there, so I'm concerned. <laughs> you know, I, I have an interest there. I have an economic interest in that. A lot of our clients own this year, so there's no, there's, you know, for me, uh, the last thing I want to do is to see permanent weakness in the share price. Such a pity that the analyst didn't mm. actually come to you today to talk about it, but I'm sure that's going to happen in due course. Dave, did you keep an eye on the? First investor presentation from Steinhoff in 20 months. I saw that. I saw that, yeah. And uh, it's, it's, it's quite interesting where this is going to go um, in, 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 in a sense that uh, they're redirecting the business. They want it to become a holding company and not interfere with, with the underlying businesses. And also um, that they are going to uh, you know proceed with – with uh, certain legal cases or cases, I think which everybody wants. Alec, you can't do anything until that's out the way. Mm. You know what? You've got to get uh, all the all the cases against the company from Visser and so on out the way before you can actually rebuild this business. In there, there was so, a, there was a question on our interactive channel uh, asking for an update on the class actions and from. Listening to the presentation and, and the webcast yesterday, they aren't giving us any update on that because exactly as you say, Dave, until they know, and, and it's interesting, you've got a lawyer as a chief executive, you've got two other big-time international lawyers who've just been drafted into the board to look after the litigation. So they certainly are focusing their attention on, on, on getting all of that behind. But the question, of course, is Marcus Joester still living in Hermana, still driving his Bentley 4x4? Um, still holding court by those you don't want to believe the the realities. Oh no, that you know that that you won't find in America. In the U.S., within a couple of months, the case is sorted out, settled, tap in jail. Uh, Bernie Madoff only took a few months. You know, one of the biggest frauds that they've experienced there, and 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 I think it's a big problem here that we don't we're not faster to the courts. And until that happens, I think people start to lose respect for uh, for the law and also uh, believe that, um, you know, if you're very wealthy, you can get away with crime. And we don't want to see that. Dave, um, but, uh, uh, one last point on this, and uh, and I guess Jailing Yester would have some kind of a, a reflection, but listening more and more to the analysts, they, they do paint a dirty and a very dark picture for South Africa, but they also say – and Azar Jameen said this today, uh, we had uh, just before you, Ranzo uh, Mukazi from uh, Future Growth, both saying this country could turn on a ticky almost. Yeah. It's, it's, it's poised to turn, but mm. it just seems as though it's taking too long for investors uh, to, to believe it. And, and some are now losing hope. Are you? I, you know what happens? I don't, I don't like what I'm seeing in the market now. And, and why I say that is that when we get beyond a certain point, it's going to be very difficult to turn around, almost like a tipping point, because at that stage, people get very disillusioned. They sell out. They capitulate and look for other plans. And we've got to move before we get to that point of capitulation. 
And that's what disturbs me about what I'm seeing on the stock market. Also, we don't want to lose those skills. We don't want the people who are running the business to say, I'm not investing in South Africa at all. I'm just going to conserve cash and see where this goes. So you start to get this downward momentum, which you can't turn, which becomes more and more difficult to turn around. For me, the turn, the turning point would be the SOE's government addressing uh, Eskom, you know, with a with a, uh, a plausible plan, something that can work, you know, with the right kind of people and a very very strong message going out there. To me, a lot depends on Eskom. You know, I'm not I'm not challenged by the national health bill. I think that's something very far away. That's not a worry in my what you know in my case. I think what is a worry is is Eskom. We've got to do things immediately, and we're dragging our feet in that. But, but Alec, when I look at the market and there's just red all over my screen at the moment, it does scare me. And it scares my, the people for whom I invest. But so, David, yeah. never forget, mm. was it Chapter mm. 8 in Intelligent Investor? <laughs> yeah, there's this character called Mr. Market, who's a yeah. manic depressive, who doesn't take any medication. He's very much in the depressive scene now. Someone yeah. like Benjamin Graham or uh, Warren Buffett <laughs> might say to you, hmm, see it for what it is. So let let there be red, and uh, and just you, you know what you've you've uh, you've assessed the company's value at. Mm. Don't mm. let Mr. Market I, talk you out of it. No, not yet. I, I, I've still got to do that research. You know what I mean? I, I, you know, I, 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 we've, we've got to do the research. Mm. Alec, you've got to be satisfied. You know, we can't we can't invest on hope and prayer. We've got to invest, in other words... You should never invest intuition. on hope and prayer. You've no. got to invest on intrinsic value. And if the intrinsic exactly. value of exactly. discovery was 150 rand last week, it's still 150 rand today, <laughs> and you can get it for... You can get, you know, two hamburgers for one, buy you, them. You, you're not for... I haven't, I haven't convinced myself yet, but I'm not... That doesn't mean I'm unconvinced. And that's why I'm searching for the stories. And once I get the story, I'm... And even if I buy it at 110 or 120, I'm happy with that. David. So uh, we, we dig, we dig, and I, I like to dig for the story. David the digger, and continuing to do so. We'll be talking in just a moment with a, an old colleague of mine. His, uh, his na- Apologies, an old colleague of mine. His name is Malcolm Reese, a former journalist who's been in the news again this week. Well, as promised, uh, Malcolm Reese joins us now. Malcolm, our, our uh, journey goes back to the internship program at MoneyWeb, where you came in, one of the brightest uh, young writers and uh, that, that I can remember in some time. You worked with us there at MoneyWeb on the investigations team. Then you went off to join what is now TISO and then became famous. <laughs> <laughs> nice to be talking to hey, you. Yeah. yeah, it's good to talk to you again, Alec. So... This week, you issued an apology to Johan van Lochrenberg, and I asked you to come on the show because last week he was on the program talking about the difficulties that he had, the travails he had with the tobacco wars and so on. You, you did a, a lot of investigations around that time. Just give us the background on why you issued that apology. Um, well, it, I mean, it was quite straightforward. Um, I think basically what happened is that uh, the Citizen published an article um, and this was sort of at the time that the rogue unit narrative was kind of being resurfaced uh, via the public protector and such. And the citizen um, published an article, um, you know, seemed to to um, make quite um, alarming claims, unsubstantiated um, from Twitter that um, – um, that there were allegations of blackmail and, and bribery and covering up child abuse at SARS, but without any evidence. And then erroneously, they sort of resurfaced this um, claim that Van Lochenberg was an apartheid spy, and they attributed that, that to me. So they said that um, that this had first um, this claim had first been made by myself in 2014. So, I mean, when I read that, it, it's, um, it seemed quite clear that I just needed to, to sort of step in and clean that up <clears throat> because it was inaccurate. And 
And yeah, so that was the reason for the apology. It was quite simply a principle-based, a principle-based um, decision. But where did they get the idea that you called him an apartheid spy? Well, the, so in a 2014 um, Sunday Times article, I mean, uh, uh, titled uh, Love Affair Rock Stars, I think that might be the first place that the, the sort of statement appeared. Um, so in, in that article, um, there was a statement there that Johan was a former undercover, apartheid uh, undercover police agent. Um, so that, yeah, so that that's where article? it came from. Yeah, that, that article appeared under my byline. But you didn't, you didn't write that. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, look, it, it did happen a long time ago. Um, and I, you know, I'm looking forward to the SANF panel where we can hopefully try and dig into the details of, of how that happens. Um, but what I have been able to sort of verify in the, in the interim is that, um, that that statement was not in the final draft that left, um, the inbox of my then direct editor, Rob Rose. Um, to go to essentially the editors. So it would have basically come from me as a final draft and then to Rob and then out into the editorial process. Um, so somewhere in that editorial process, the statement was inserted into the article. You know, th- this is really interesting because, uh, Malcolm, when, when I was a young journalist <coughs> at the Sunday Times uh, in the 1980s, we had a guy there who his name was John Horrock, and we all thought he was a bit dodgy. And it came out in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that he was working for, for the Bureau of State Security. In other words, I think uh, uh, he was a government agent, and he was the chief copy taster. So he was the guy where all the articles would go through. He was a major uh, even in, in, uh, in, in Bureau of State Security, and he would change things around as – as they, uh, as it suited him and the government and whatever, and I guess mm. it never happened to me as a financial journalist, but uh, I'm sure it happened a lot to the political guys. But I didn't think it, it continued to this day that people would just insert inaccurate information to make a point. Well, I mean, look, I think that you know, there's a fair argument to say that editors um, and the editorial process should be there. So, you know, a final draft coming out of a, a journalist should go through some sort of um, vetting an editorial process and that um, editors should be editing. I mean, I think that's, you know, a largely their function. Um, but in this case, the statement that was edited um, in the article, I mean, in the first instance, it's well, the first point to make is that it, it seems totally erroneous. I mean, the, the, whether or not Johan may have been an apartheid spy has nothing to do with the substance um, of the article. Um, secondly, it's, you know, we now know it's, it's to be inaccurate. And then you need to wonder, I mean, why, why is it there now? Um, and then the only conclusion that you could seem to make from that was, was that it, 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 it cast aspersions as to, you know, um, his integrity and unfairly so. Yeah, it's been a crazy time that journalism has been through, but you do say that the South African National Editors Forum have got a panel who are looking into all of this and, and uh, hopefully to, to sort things out. And that can't come any moment too soon, can it? Yes. No, no. I've, <laughs> I mean, um, yeah, I've been calling for a, a panel, and, and I think that um, it's desperately needed to to try and um, find some clarity as to what, is ha- what has transpired um, in the, you know, the reporting on the SARS road unit at the Sunday Times and beyond. I mean, there's definitely a lot that remains unclear about that, Um quite divisive episode in journalism. I think that we do need a, a thorough inquiry to find out um, what went wrong and why. I mean, because how else are we going to to prevent such from happening again in the future yeah. and to learn, I mean. And just to put it into uh, on the record and in perspective, you left the Sunday Times at the end of 2014 before all of those SARS rogue unit um, what has now been, been uh, shown to be fake news articles appeared? No, no, that, I mean, that's not true. Um, so I wrote the, the Love Affair article, which was, I mean, some call it a precursor to the Rogue Unit series. Um, it, I mean, the article itself didn't contain anything about any units at, at the Sunday Times. But after I wrote that, I was then um, put into the unit. So I was essentially at that time, I was working as a senior um, a, a journalist for the Business Times, and then I was sort of plucked from that position and put into the, the Sunday Times unit that did the Rogue series. 
Um, but I didn't stick around for long. I think that um, my byline appeared on one of the, the very controversial articles. That's um, SARS bug Zuma. Um, but, I mean, <clears throat> within a matter of months, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I developed quite like a, a deep sort of disillusionment um, owing to, I think, certain team dynamics um, and processes, and and that's when we resigned from the Sunday Times. So I kind of I was I was there for the beginning parts of the the wider rogue unit um, investigation.